The approach we're taking in this series is I want us to understand the goal, the desired end result of your parenting, because if you, as mom and dad, can agree on what the end result is you're trying to produce from your home, it will make the day-to-day parenting decisions along the way a lot easier and much more clear. And I pray that's been the um, result of our time together. Um, We did boys last week. We're doing girls today. Next week, we're going to do the light topic of discipline. Um, Discipline in the home. So if if that's interesting to you, we'll be doing that next week. This class is about parenting daughters, but it's not about producing daughters from our homes. It's about producing biblical women. And this is not how to raise Christian daughters. Okay? The goal is to raise biblical women, and God takes care of whether they are Christians or not. You are to teach them the fear of God, the wisdom of God, obedience to God, and repentance. And that lays the groundwork then for the gospel. And obviously, you're going to present the gospel to your children. You're going to pray for your children, your daughters, but the Lord saves them, you don't. Okay, so I'm not going to rebuild that. We, we've done that in the past couple of weeks. We can't do that. God saves who he's going to save, and we're called to produce biblical women. And God tells us in his word how to do that, and that's what we want to do this morning. And here's where we're going this morning. I want to look at the roles as God designed uniquely for a woman from the Bible. And then we're going to consider, just like we did last week for the young men, we're going to consider the dis- some ideas of disciplines to teach your daughters to prepare them to fulfill the roles that God's given them. And then we'll cross a line from thus saith the Lord to here's some ideas from the teacher on how to implement some of this. Okay? And I'll clearly mark that when we cross that line. But I want to start this morning by reading a couple of passages. Um, these are three passages in the New Testament that speak directly to and about a woman. And I'm going to ask you just to listen. You know, in the old days, that's what people did. They didn't have Bibles in front of them. They would just listen to the Word of God being read. And I want you to hear what is said in the New Testament about women. Let the Word of God speak. Hear the high and exalted place of a woman. And hear the great responsibility and the influence of a woman. I'm going to start in Titus 2, starting in verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. In 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is Paul writing to a young pastor named Timothy, and he's instructing him about women in the church. Starting in verse 9 of 1 Timothy 2, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. 
for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity and self-restraint. It's hard words, aren't they? 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 1, in the same way, you wives... Be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not merely be external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children, if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear." The Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, describes in great detail the role and function of a woman, and it is in contrast to the role of a man. It's not in opposition to the man. It's always harmonizing the roles with a man. God's creation of man and woman was the most basic and pivotal event in the Garden of Eden, the perfect and blessed or happy design, the perfect design and course of the world was set. And immediately in the Garden of Eden, Satan came for it. He began his attack on God's perfect design. And you know what happened. We spent some time talking about that last week in Genesis 3. And over the course of history, that attack has continued. Great civilizations have been marked by submission to God's design And other civilizations have failed. And eras have been marked by a departure of that course. In 2020, Greece celebrated the 2,500th anniversary of the Battle of Thermopylae. The most famous battle probably in ancient European history. You probably know the story, you've heard it. 300 Spartan soldiers, including King Leonidas, defended a rocky mountain pass in northern Greece against an estimated 150,000 Persian soldiers led by Xerxes in August of 480 BC. The Battle of Thermopylae is remembered as being an extraordinary military stand, blocking access through the mountain pass, thus buying valuable time for the Greek citizens behind them to escape and for the Greek navy and army to rally their forces. Over seven days, three of which were intense combat, the 300 Spartans held the pass. Ultimately, there were no Spartan survivors. All 300 died. Herodotus estimated at the time, he's a historian, estimated at the time that 20,000 Persian invaders died in the Battle of Thermopylae. That's why it's hard to find anybody to say who won. 300? 20,000. But ultimately, Xerxes made it through the pass. There's been a lot of books written about the Battle of Thermopylae. 
And King Leonidas, and one of my favorites, if not my favorite, is a book by Stephen Pressfield called The Gates of Fire. Some say it's the best history of the battle, and a unique aspect of The Gates of Fire by, by uh, Stephen Pressfield is that he doesn't focus just on the 300 men. He tells the story of the women of Sparta. And one narrative about the women of Sparta was that prior to the battle, everyone knew that the 300 warriors had been selected for a very difficult assignment, maybe even a suicide mission. King Leonidas was approached by some of the wives, including his own wife. They wanted to know, why did you choose these 300? Why did you choose my husband for this battle? Why not someone else? And why 300? This was Leonidas's explanation. Quote, the Spartans will look to the wives, mothers, sisters, and daughters of the fallen. If they behold your hearts torn apart and broken with grief, they too will break. And Greece will break with them. But if you bear up, dry-eyed, not alone enduring your loss, but seizing it with contempt for its agony and embracing it as, on, as the honor that it is in truth, then Sparta will stand. You and your sisters of the 300 are the mothers now of all Greece and of freedom itself. King Leonidas chose himself and 299 other men, not because of any particular strength, ability, or courage of those men. There was no grand battle strategy involved in that selection. Each of those men were individually selected by the king because of the character of the women they would leave behind. Well, that was then. Women were honored in that culture. Let's talk about now. Let's talk about the trajectory of the United States. And as I said, there are cultures and nations that have risen who have honored God's design for women, and there are cultures that have declined and failed because of the rejection of God's design for women. And I think you're raising your daughters in the midst of a culture war. And um, in this culture war, the dark side of the culture has clearly won. I think the high and exalted place of a woman was left a long time ago. The role of women in this country is no longer changing. It has changed. We have, as a country, completely walked away from God's design. The extraordinary high expectation our culture places on a woman is one of the unintended consequences of that departure. A woman is expected to be a wife, a mom, have a successful career, not just a career, but be in management, be a senior executive, maybe even be president. That's the expectation, and if you watch any television at all, why? No, I'm kidding. Um, you've seen this portrayed in our culture. This breathtaking pace of change in our culture corresponds to, back in 1971, the rise of feminism and what was called the Declaration of Feminism. Let me read to you from the Declaration of Feminism. Quote, The end of the institution of marriage is necessary for the liberation of women, therefore... 
It is important for us to encourage women to leave their husbands and not live individually with men. When that was said in 1971, that was considered aberrant thinking. Today, that is completely embraced now to the point where it's a religion. And if you are contrary to that religion, you will be suppressed and even punished. All of that is, goes along with, I just have to say this, the sorry state of manhood. Men are weak, lazy, immoral, arrogant, self-consumed, self-justifying, confused, disrespectful to women, present company excluded, I trust. <laughs> I hope that doesn't describe you. Motherhood's under attack. The family is under attack. I did a little research in preparation for this. The uh, communist Black Lives Matter organization says this, quote, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. There's some terms missing from there. Dad, marriage, family. They had to take that down from their website, by the way, but they still fully believe it, and they're not going away. I hope you've seen that, understand that. So that's easy. That's on one end of the political spectrum. So I went looking on the other end of the political spectrum, and it wasn't hard. There's a, a political commentator named David Brooks who everybody calls conservative, so we'll go with that. He wrote a, uh, a long essay that was published in March 2020, the title of it is The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. The subtitle is The Family Structure We've Held Up as a Cultural Ideal for the Past Half Century Has Been a Catastrophe for Many. It's Time to Figure Out Better Ways to Live Together. Oh, and by the way, David Brooks is on his second marriage, for whatever that's worth. So you have the far left, you have the right on the political spectrum, joining together, advancing what is a lie from the pit of hell. That the, the ideal and the model of a husband and a wife committed to each other for life in the context of family and having children is a, is a construct. BLM says it's a construct of Western culture. David Brooks says it's a construct, if you read the article, of the past 500 years, you and I both know it's a construct of who? God that began when? At creation. I lay all this out for you because this is the pool that your daughters are going to swim in, and you're in the water with them. They will be taught as fact lies from the pit of hell, as if they are true. And it's up to you and I to reverse that. It's a dark picture. We need to recognize the depth and danger of the current we're swimming in. There needs to be a recognition that as dark as that is and as contrary to God's design that that is, there is hope. There is truth. None of this is new. It can be reversed by you and I. And so I wanted us to take a few minutes to look at that design that began not 
instituted by Western culture, not instituted 500 years ago by a bunch of misogynistic men trying to put women down, but by the God of the universe who designed the role of men and women for our good and for his glory. Ladies, the question is, why are you here? Why? I don't mean in the class. I mean on the earth. What makes your purpose in life different because you are a woman and not a man? Can you answer that question? Because if you haven't yet, your daughter might ask you that someday. And after this morning, I hope you can answer that question. Of all the commands and the directions in Scripture, what commands are given uniquely to a woman? God gave my wife and I three daughters no sons. Very early, I wondered, what am I supposed to do with three daughters? No NFL anymore. Um, All kinds of things didn't happen anymore. And I got very curious, and I actually went through the Word of God to find out what are the commands that are unique to a woman, because I wanted to know, what am I supposed to produce from my home? You know, in those passages I read to you, so many of the commands in, in 1 Timothy 2 and Titus 2 and 1 Peter 3 are commands that apply to the men also. Like, don't be gossips. Um, don't be enslaved to wine. Teach what is good. Receive instruction with entire submissiveness. You understand that's not a command just to women. That applies to all of us. Be sensible, pure, kind. Those are all commands that are applicable to men and women. But embedded in those passages and going back to Genesis are commands and descriptions that apply only to women. And in there is what unlocks the truth of what are the basic roles of a woman that makes her different than a man. And these aren't the roles, these are not exclusive, these are not the roles that define her entire life. These are the roles that if a woman is living within these roles and can add other things on top of that, she's living according to God's design. So, let me just give them to you. The three roles, the three unique commands, the design from the Garden of Eden was that a woman would be a wife. Big surprise, huh? Here's another big surprise. Say it with me. Mom. A mother. And here's the hard one. A worker at home. It's become very controversial, and we'll, we'll talk through that now. All of this is in the context of marriage. And I usually say this at the end, but I want to say this at the beginning. It is clear in the Bible that God did not intend for every single woman to be married. There is such a thing as a gift of singleness. It's talked about in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 25 to 40. You can look at it. I need to say that up front. front. It's rare, though. It is so rare that your parenting should assume that your daughter will be married someday. It's God's design. If she doesn't marry, you will find that everything we talk about today will still benefit, benefit her and will be useful, helpful, and profitable in, in her own life. Okay? Having said that, the assumption 
of your parenting should be that your daughter is going to be a wife, a mom, and a worker at home. And I want to show you this from Scripture. I read you Titus 2 where it says that the woman is commanded to love her husband. That is unique to women. Even in this day and age when wife and husband have weird meanings, you know what it means. Okay? And it goes on in Titus, he goes on in Titus 2, uh, verse 5, to say they are to be subject to their own husbands. 1 Peter 3, 1, I read it to you, that she is to be subject to her own husband. And in Genesis 2, all of that in the New Testament ties back to Genesis 2, which we went through in some depth last week, so I won't do that again. But in the Garden of Eden... During the creation process, there was one time when God said his creation was not good. And it was when? It is not good for who to be alone? The man. Okay? That's Genesis 2.18. And then he says, I will make him a helper suitable to him. That term helper. And then God parades the animals. Adam names the animals. And Adam's conclusion at the end of that process is what? There's nobody for me. I just saw pairs of animals go by, and I'm here by myself. For Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. And then in verse 23 of Genesis 2, it says, The man said, this is after Eve is created, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Okay? In Genesis 2, at creation, in the garden, God created to fulfill a purpose and define that purpose of why did he create man and woman? It was to come together in marriage, to be joined together. And the roles that they have completely mesh in that design. Your daughter, with some exception, was created to be the helper of a man. Helper means sustainer. And if you stand out on the corner at a a public university, maybe even a private university, I won't draw a distinction, and you say that women were created to help a man, you might even be arrested these days. It's a dirty word to the feminists. It rivals submission or being subject to as something you don't say out loud. Well, we're going to shout it from the mountaintops because that word helper is a loaded term with deep implications. And here's why it's loaded and deep. The God of the universe, the creator, calls himself what? The helper. It is the same word. And I'm an accountant. I'm not seminary trained, but I verified this. The same word used for helper is the word that is used in the Old Testament in Psalm 33:20. God is our help and our shield. Psalm 54:4. God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. Psalm 121:2. My help comes from who? The Lord. Hebrews 13.6 quotes Psalm 18 in a greater context and says, it says in Hebrews 13.6, the Lord is my what? Come on, stay with me. Good. Helper. The Lord is my helper. 
I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? If your daughter thinks that being a helper is beneath her, she's making quite a statement about the God of the universe. Men, if you think your wife is a second-class citizen, you are making quite a statement about how God views a woman. That is a high and exalted role. You know, when Christ was here on earth in John 14 and John 15, he says he was going to send what? A helper. And who was the helper? The Holy Spirit. If you're saved, you're sitting here today and dwelt by the helper. And in John 14, John 15, and Romans 8, here's the description of the Holy Spirit's ministry in our life as a believer. He teaches, he guides, he protects, he encourages, he convicts of sin, he directs us to worship, he points us to Christ, he loves us, he reminds us, he gives us peace, he helps our weaknesses, he comforts us, and he advocates for us before the Father. That's quite a list. What does that have to do with marriage? And what does that have to do with your daughters? Your daughter someday, if she's living according to the purposes and the design of God, is going to be helping a man. The other implication is men. If you're married and you sometimes think, man, is she the Holy Spirit or something? Guess what? It's the same word. And I love, I've taught this before on Mother's Day. I love reflecting on this, that our wives are like the Holy Spirit. Does your wife ever teach you? Does she guide you? Does she protect you? She encourages you. She convicts you of sin. That's the part we don't like, huh, man? We don't like that. She directs us to worship. She points us to Christ. She loves us. She reminds us. She gives us peace. She helps our weaknesses, she comforts us, and she advocates or she prays for us before the Father. Can you imagine going through life without that? I cannot. Your daughters will be told that being a wife makes her a second-class citizen and that it's a demeaning role. I already read it to you. It's pervasive in our culture. Hopefully, you have a taste for how deceptive and wrong that is Again, it is a lie from the pit of hell, a lie that began in the Garden of Eden and continues to this day. So the fall happens in Genesis 3, and then the curse is pronounced, and in the curse, as we saw last week, clarity is given to the roles. And the clarity given in Genesis 3, verse 16, when God says to the woman, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And I want you to understand something. Submission is not the curse. The fact that a woman is to be subject to the leadership of her husband was not the curse. That was part of God's perfect design for the happiness of his creation, for the good of his creation. It's the desire to replace the man in that leadership role that is the curse. Why? Because that's exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. We talked about this last week again, but the woman did not commit the first sin. The man did. And if you remember, we played Where's Adam in Genesis 3. And what we saw was Adam was there the entire time. He hid behind Eve while she sinned, 
having stepped out of his leadership, but allowing her to step outside of his leadership was the first sin. So profound a sin that um, our culture and creation is cursed um, with that desire for headship in a woman. Let me be very clear. I don't want to be misunderstood, misquoted. Women are not the curse. Women desiring leadership is the curse. And what's even worse is men who don't step up and lead and prevent her from that sin. And we talked about that a lot last week. You know, and the problem is, men, that the ladies we married are probably more capable than you and I at times, and it's really easy to step back and let them lead, isn't it? We can't do that. The curse happened because of sin. The sin was that both man and woman reversed their God-given roles. And I would tell you from my standpoint, involvement in the church, 90% of the marriage issues going on are because of that issue right there. The other thing to remember is that marriage is for life. Okay, the role of a woman, your daughter, is to be married to a man someday, and other than very rare circumstances, that commitment is for life. Why do I say that? Mark 10, when Christ was walking on the earth, he quoted the Old Testament. He said, from the beginning of creation, so much for Western construct, 500 years, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. And then he went on and he said this, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Marriage is for life. That should have very practical implications on your daughter's dating life. I talked about dating for 30 seconds last week, and wow. So I thought I'd do it again today. Dad, someday your authority is going to be replaced, and this is good. It's God's design. Your daughter should understand the ramifications of her choice and choices in this area. Second role, this one's easy. A mom, Titus 2, talks about loving her children. First Timothy 2, I read to you, says that women will be preserved through the bearing of children. That word preserved is used several times in the New Testament. Nowhere does it mean that it, uh, salvation. Because some of your translations may say that, that the uh, woman is saved. The point is that the role of a woman will never go away. It is preserved when she has children. Because, and you know this, you're all in this room, you have children, you know that there is nobody who fulfills the role of a mom other than mom. And in Genesis 3, after the the fall, the curse is pronounced, I will greatly, in verse 16, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. And all the ladies said, yeah. Yeah. And in pain, you will bring forth children. I know this sounds silly, but I need to say this. Having children is not the curse. It's the pain in childbirth that's the curse. And some of you are saying, why would you say that? I could read you pages of quotes of Christian theologians and philosophers who will tell you their interpretation of all of this is that children are a curse. 
It's a lie from hell. Children are a gift. They are a blessing. They are for our good and our joy. Children are a gift from the Lord. The pain in childbirth is a reminder of a whole bunch of things, the biggest one being Adam and Eve sinned. We are sinners. We need a Savior. Okay? Let's talk about a worker at home. The wife is to direct her labors primarily to the home while the husband works outside the home to provide for his wife and children. This is the um, complementary nature of the roles that God designed for men and women. Her faithfulness at home allows him to focus on his role as primary, primary provider. Okay? Genesis 2.18, I'm going to make him a helper suitable for him. The role of a woman goes along with that of a man, not in opposition. Titus 2, Paul commands... Titus, to teach the young women in his church to be workers at home. This is very, very controversial inside and outside the church. And the question's always asked, can a woman work outside the home? Should a woman work outside the home? Well, I think I can say quickly, yes, she can. Should she? If you ask me that, I'd say, go ask who? Your husband. And men, that is a heavy responsibility. Because you get to wrestle with, should she work outside the home? You see, the role of a woman, as defined in the Bible, is not all-encompassing. If you're married with children working at home, that's not the end of it. There are women out there that can do all of that and do it excellently and still work. But the point is, you start sliding down a slippery slope if you lose focus on at least accomplishing the three roles that God has given you. And that is what um, you have to teach your daughters. And we're about to get very practical about your daughters, by the way. I'm laying a lot of groundwork here. I want you to know that um, I'm not making this up. That God's design for a woman when he created women was that she would be a wife, a mom, and a worker at home, and a whole bunch of other things. I want you to understand that that role is God's design. It's his perfect design. And I also want you to understand that the influence given to a woman through those roles is enormous. It is a high calling. And why is it so important for our daughters to understand and fulfill their role? Well, I read it to you in Titus 2.5. Paul says, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. If you need a motivation, there's your motivation. I don't think anybody wants to dishonor the word of God. Some factors to keep in mind as you raise your daughters now. Your daughter is going to be bombarded with false information. She's going to be tested and challenged in her understanding of her role. Your job is for her to understand her role and then to prepare her to withstand those challenges. She needs to understand that she will never be content outside of God's perfect design. And one more thing to keep in mind is that these roles are not just for Christians. This is God's design for all women. So let's look at the disciplines of a biblical woman. And if you would, turn in your Bible to Proverbs 31. Proverbs chapter 31. And what I, just, what I want to do very quickly is to put the taste in your mouth 
to go back to Proverbs 31 in your own home and to start thinking about how you can use Scripture to prepare your daughters for what's coming. Okay? Proverbs 31, verse 10, starts with an excellent wife who can find, and every man in the room is saying, I found her. Right, guys? All right, good. Her worth is far above jewels. And that is true. That is from the Garden of Eden forward into eternity. That is God's design and its truth. There's no one else on the face of the earth, men, who will fill the role of the helper the way God's woman who he brought to you will fulfill. So these three roles that are unique to women require disciplines in her life to fulfill these roles. I'm going to give you a couple here. I'm going to go through seven of them. There could be 17. I could have focused on four. I may only get through six. We'll see. So I'm telling you that I'm just pulling principles out of Proverbs 31, some disciplines that are present in an excellent wife. And by the way, these are seven things, men, that you should be praising your wife for in front of your children to the degree you can. And you're going to hear me say this a lot this morning. There is no bigger impact on a young lady, in my view, than for her to hear her father praise her mother. Not for what she does necessarily, but for who she is as based in scripture. Let's go through these. The first one, the first discipline to teach our daughters is stability. Stability. Verse 11 of Proverbs 31 says that the heart of her husband trusts in her. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. That's stability. That's single purpose, faithful living all the days of her life. The word the, uh, trust, the heart of her husband trusts in her. That means confidence, security. It's the same word used throughout Proverbs when we are told to trust the Lord. So, I'm, if you guys aren't getting this, our wives are a stand-in, a personification, not in perfection, obviously, but a stand-in for God himself. They are helper. God is our helper. We are to trust her as we trust God. That is what you're trying to produce from your home, a young lady where the man that she's married to is married for life and his heart trusts in her. Titus 2.5, Paul said um, that we are to teach the young women to be sensible. That means of sound mind, sane, (laughs) self-controlled. That's all wrapped up into that sensibility, that stability. So what does stability look like? Well, you want to produce women from your home who are truthful, reliable, stable, consistent, grounded, Yes, she can have emotions, but she's not driven by her emotions. She understands that her emotions can be deceitful. She's a woman of integrity. She's trustworthy regardless of their location, regardless of their circumstances, and regardless of how much money's in the bank. She's stable. She is who she is all the days of her life. 
So the first discipline is stability. The second is work. Work. Everyone in God's creation is a worker. We spent a lot of time on this talking about men last week. Proverbs 31 spends a lot of time talking about women. And every lady in here who has children is going to identify with the description of an excellent wife because this is your life. Verse 13, she looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. She is like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She rises also while it's night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. Verse 17, she girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp does not go out at night. Verse 19, she stretches out her hands to the distaff and her hands grasp the spindle. I know none of you are grasping the spindle these days. If you are, I'd love to talk to you. But you get the point, right? You understand what's being said here. Verse 22, she makes coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them and supplies belts to the tradesmen. Verse 27, she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Wow. For all of you who are moms, have been moms, you know all of that is true, isn't it? That might even understate it. Do your daughters understand that? Do they not as a negative, but as a positive? Titus 2, I read it in verse 5, were to teach the younger women to be workers at home. And what does it look like to be a worker at home? Men, Proverbs 31 says that your wife is industrious, she's skilled, unending work, 24-7 on duty. Always something to do. The to-do list is never done, is it, ladies? Those of you with young children know that's true. Proverbs 31, I read it, talks about how she's disciplined with her time. It talks about how she's early to rise. It talks about the efficiency of her work, that she gives portions to her maidens. What that means is prescribed tasks, delegate, delegates work. That's efficiency. And by the way, moms, that's one way to train your children. In the description of a biblical godly woman is a clue on how to teach this. Give your daughters work to do. Teach them work. Strong arms, physical strength. Some of you have multiple children, five and under. I don't know how you do it, but you carry them all. (laughs) You know what it is to have to strengthen your arms. And in verse 13, it says, with delight. Here's the discipline. The work has to get done. There's no question to teach the work ethic is important. But does your daughter, is your daughter on a trajectory where she will find pleasure in her work, longing for the work, desiring that work? That's the discipline. Work might come easily, but how about delighting in that work? So you have the dis- disciplines of stability, work. Number three, money. Money. Verse 14, I read this. She is like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. Verse 16, she considers a field and buys it. From her earnings, she plants a vineyard. Have you ever considered your daughter doing that? Verse 24, 
I read this. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies belts to the tradesmen. She is wise. She has a good business sense. She takes the long-term view. She understands leveraging assets. I love saying that. I'm an accountant. I had to say that. It's in my notes. (laughs) She understands profit. In other words, profit is not to be spent. It's to be what? Reinvested. That's an amazing woman. That's how all of you are. She's not known as a spender. She uses profit as a way to generate more profit. Why? For the benefit of her family, the future. Do your daughters know how to do that? Have they thought about that? Have you talked to them about that? If they're four years old, the answer should probably be no, by the way. (laughs) But I remember one of my daughters wanting to sit down and learn about mutual funds. Gave her a little bit of money and said, invest it. There's lots of ways to teach them about money, and it's not to idolize money. It's to give them a skill. I always say it this way. A woman with three children has at least four cost centers, probably five, herself, her husband, and three children. That's complex cost accounting right there. It's probably good to um, equip her with the disciplines of handling money wisely. So you have stability, work, money. Number four, kindness. Kindness. I told you, Ann and I raised three daughters. And one of the things that blew my mind when the kids were young was how mean girls can be to each other. And I'm not talking about my daughters necessarily, but I watched. We had a lot of young ladies in our house over the years. And I watched how girls never forget a slight. Is that true? I'm seeing a lot of heads going up and down. Okay, it wasn't just my house. I was blown away by how catty and mean and vindictive young ladies can be. Proverbs 31 says that a woman extends, in verse 20, she extends her hand to the poor. She stretches out her hands to the needy. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Let me tell you... I'm not talking about this because girls are mean to each other, but think about this, and moms, you know this to be true. Can your daughter be kind to mean, demanding, ungrateful, mouthy, needy people? They're called children, aren't they? They just are sometimes, right? This is the discipline of kindness, and the first threshold is to her own husband, and the second step is to her own children. Ladies, you know that's hard. When you are working 24-7, you're tired, and those children are mean, demanding, ungrateful, needy people, and you need to be kind. That's a discipline. Stretches when it says she stretches out her hands to the needy, it means to spread out, to give away, and it's done with wisdom, skill, shrewdness. It's a hard attitude that is reflected in action. Okay? Compassion and care is grounded in wisdom, not emotion. That's an important part of the discipline of kindness. Number five, contentment. 
Contentment, the discipline of contentment. Verse 21 of Proverbs 31 says, She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. Verse 25, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. She's not afraid, and that lack of fear is based in confidence and being strong and courageous for herself and her family. And that confidence is covered in dignity and strength. And it comes from faith in God, a woman who is living according to his design, has faith in God that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. It's based in her preparation. It's not let go and let God. It's preparation. It's always looking what's coming and being prepared for that. It's taking a long-term view, and it's self-control. It's not confidence that comes from wealth or circumstances or arrogance. That's the discipline. She's content to fall under her husband's leadership knowing that he is accountable to God. And ladies, some of you know that what I'm talking about right now, even maybe in your own marriage, is very, very difficult to be content because this isn't the life I thought I was getting into. This isn't the way I thought it was going to go. And it takes discipline to be content inside of those circumstances. When it says she smiles at the future, I did a little word study on that. It's great. It means that she laughs, she plays, she mocks the future. She makes sport of the future. And you say, how does that square? Because you just said that a woman is confident in the future because of preparation. Well, she mocks, laughs, and plays with the future because she's prepared. And she trusts the Lord that whatever the future brings, she's doing what God's called her to do. Okay? And that's the same word, that laugh, or um, she smiles at the future, is the same word in Psalm 2, 4, where it says that God who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them, meaning the rulers of the world. Again, a parallel between a godly woman and the God she serves. Okay? Number six, the sixth discipline. These are all difficult to teach. These are all hard to implant. That's why we call them disciplines. Number six is humility. Humility. A lifetime of service to others, husband and children primarily, is humbling, and it requires humility. I think the ladies would agree with that, but let me just drag you through it to make sure you do agree with it. That humility involves bodily fluids at the wrong time in the wrong place, right? Embarrassment. Ever been in the grocery store and the kid melts down? And you see some people you know on your way out? Requires humility. It's a thankless task. Some of you ladies haven't been thanked properly in a really long time. And it requires humility to, in spite of that, do what God's called you to do. And never expect that thanks. Fighting the curse requires extraordinary patience and humility. Ladies, because you know sometimes you can do it better than your husband. Don't agree with me. Just, just to tell you a little secret, we understand that. We get it. It takes enormous humility 
to fall under the leadership of the man that God has directed you to fall under and understand that God fully understood when he said that, that he's telling you to be subject to an imperfect human being. We struggle being subject to a perfect God. How hard must it be for my wife to fall under my imperfect human, sometimes weak leadership? That takes humility. And our daughters need to be prepared for that. Where do I get this? In Proverbs 31, verse 12, she does him good and not evil all the days of her life. Who's good? Him, her husband. Her husband, verse 23, is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Verse 28, her children rise up and bless her, her husband also, and he praises her saying, many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the product of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Her life is devoted to the reward and benefit of others. Her works praise her. I just read this to you. If you go through and look at that, she gets a lot of praise. Her works praise her, her children praise her, her husband praises her. You'll never see where her own mouth extols her virtue. And she may not hear that praise for a long time. Her behavior and qualities draw attention, not her clothing or the lack of it. You won't see any of that in Proverbs. The source of the praise is what she does in accordance with God's design. She's not looking for recognition or gratification. And by the way, men, this doesn't mean that you should not recognize praise and honor her. I think that's implicit here. I hope you see the command there, guys, that we are to be praising our wives. Not flattering, praising, especially in front of our children. But is your daughter prepared for the life? And I know I'm painting such a dark picture, aren't I? It's not a dark picture. But it is, if a woman is not prepared for the humility that is um, um, required in this role. First Peter 3, I read this to you. I'm going to read it again, starting in verse 3. Your adornment must not, mer- must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold, jewelry, or putting on dresses. It doesn't say you can't do those things, by the way. It says not merely. In other words, do that. With a proper perspective, verse 4, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. I want to focus on that phrase, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. You want to teach your daughters the discipline of humility. This is a phrase and a principle that they need to understand. There's nothing wrong with external beauty, but the beauty that matters and that lasts to the end is the internal beauty, and Peter calls it the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Gentle means humble. Matthew 5, excuse me, 5, 5 says, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. It means humble, and quiet means peaceful, tranquil. It's the same word in 1 Timothy 2, 2 says that we are to lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. 
Do you get the picture? Humble and tranquil. And by the way, this is not silent. This is not saying that women shouldn't speak. I hope you got the picture already that a woman has a lot to say and we need to be listening. It does it is not saying that the woman is to be weak and voiceless. You should already sense the enormous influence of a woman simply by being a godly woman, a biblical woman. These qualities, this inner beauty, it says, is precious in the sight of God. That phrase is only used three times in the Bible. Do you know what God calls precious in his sight? Psalm 116.15 says those, um, the death of his godly ones is precious in his sight. In 1 Peter 2, it says that Christ is precious in his sight. And in 1 Peter 3, your daughters, your wife, with a gentle and quiet spirit, is precious in the sight of God. It's high, high, high view of women. If it's precious in the sight of God, it should be precious in the sight of every one of us. And it should be elevated in the training of our daughters. What is precious to God should be precious to you and be encouraged by you. It should be honored and it should be taught. This phrase, gentle and quiet spirit, is not speaking of personality, by the way. It is addressing the abiding quality that resides not in what a woman sees in the mirror, but what God sees in her heart. And what the world sees of her heart through her behavior. That is a gentle and quiet spirit. It is not personality. Let me just repeat that. This phrase addresses the abiding quality that resides in what a woman has, not what she sees in the mirror, but what is in her heart. And what others see of her heart through her behavior. Not her own words. Okay? This speaks to the incorruptible character, it says, and fidelity of a woman to truth and to her role that is evident by her humble, gentle, and quiet obedience to Christ. Is your daughter going to leave your home humble, or will she be large and in charge? Number seven, modesty. The discipline of modesty The end of Proverbs 31, verse 30, it says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Again, a woman will be praised for the right reasons. She's known for her good works because of her good works. She's known for her godliness because of her godliness. We should be teaching her, what does it say in that verse? The fear of God. There is a direct contrast between um, charm and beauty being deceitful and vain that all passes the fear of God never goes away it is forever your daughter needs to be taught the discipline of modesty she doesn't desire to draw the attention of men she's concerned first with her heart before the Lord and then the attention of one man for the rest of her life a young lady who's allowed to or encouraged to be flirtatious or even provocative in her personal relationships, especially with the opposite sex, 
is being set up for a very difficult transition to being satisfied with the attention of one man for the rest of her life. You need to help her understand the wisdom and the truth of Proverbs, the proper perspective of physical beauty, the proper perspective and importance of her heart, which the Lord calls precious in his sight. And every man who is married to a godly woman certainly would say is precious in his heart. So we're going to cross the line now. We've talked about seven disciplines. There's so many more we could talk about. And I say that, that John MacArthur always says that means the guy uh, doesn't know what else to say. Um, in this case, there's a whole lot more I would love to say. But what I wanted to do this morning is to run you through Proverbs 31 fairly quickly and dads particularly to point you towards Scripture for you to think about with your wife what kind of a woman do you want to produce from your home. If you understand the woman you want to produce from your home, then look at and talk about your daughters and think through what are the disciplines daughter number one isn't doing so well on, because I'll bet you it's different than the disciplines of daughter number two. And I've given seven of them to you as an idea starting place. They are not exhaustive. As you read through the word of God and as you make observations in life, there may be more, there may be other disciplines um, that you want to train your daughters in because of who she is and what God says you need to produce from your home. So what I want to do at, at this point is give you some ideas on teaching these seven disciplines. None of what I'm about to tell you is thus saith the Lord. That's the line we're crossing. Okay? Everything up to now, for the most part, I hope you understand, is from God's word. There's certain things that are non-negotiable. We're to teach our children the fear of God, the wisdom of God, obedience to God, repentance, which we're going to spend some time on next week. Those are non-negotiable. Another non-negotiable is to teach our children God's design for them, for your daughter. What does God say you need to do in your life to be happy and satisfied before your creator? And with rare exception, it's being a wife, a mom, and a worker at home. Again, primarily, not exclusively. And then we looked at the disciplines, the discipline of stability, work, money, kindness, contentment, humility, and modesty. Now let me walk through those and, and be a little more, um, I guess, practical and methodological. Some ideas. You want to produce a stable woman from your home? Never, ever, no, never, ever accept a lying tongue. And that starts when they're three, four, and five years old, based on our experience. You can deal with it then, or you can wait till they're 14 and 15, or you can let it go and let them deal with the rest of their life. The inability of anybody to trust them, especially their husband, because they don't understand the value um, of truth. Telling the truth. Don't accept a lying tongue. Deal with it no matter how small the issue presents itself. Honesty is a corollary with trustworthiness. It applies to you and I. 
If we don't tell the truth, we're not trustworthy. That's certainly true for your children. Train your daughter out of emotional living and decision-making. When you see that going on, address the issue. Probably not in the heat of the moment from a little bit of personal experience. Pick a different time when emotions aren't running high and talk about emotional decision-making. The principle in the Bible of go back to what you know and let, and that's Psalms. Psalms, over and over and over. It's an emotional, this is what's going on. And then the psalmist goes back to what he knows and allows what he knows to dictate how he feels and how he interprets and then how he lives, the decisions he makes. Train your daughters that kind of thinking. You don't want to mock their emotions. Women are different than men probably get arrested for saying that here soon. They are. And their emotions are a gift. They are good. And it's not to wring their emotions out of them. It's for them to control their emotions. Stability. Let me talk a minute about spontaneity. Spontaneity is the contrast to stability. Spontaneity, what I mean by that is... um, Yeah, I know I'm supposed to be over here and do this, but I'm going to go with my friends over here and do that. Spontaneity is a virtue among the young. They will criticize somebody who's not spontaneous. They will elevate those who are spontaneous. And it's my observation that spontaneity is a luxury. Um, It's a virtue among the young. It's a luxury to the mature, isn't it? How many of you can just drop anything and just run off and do whatever you want? You can't. You have kids in the nursery. You better be there to pick them up. Right? So spontaneity is, um, you know, and this is a hard one to walk because you don't want to be the killjoy, but you cannot allow spontaneity to be elevated to a virtue among your children and then expect them when they become adults to understand that it's a luxury. It's not real life. She may have the freedom of spontaneity now with no responsibilities, but that is not her future. That takes us to work. This is a hard one. It seems to me that your daughters ought to have some responsibilities so that they understand that life isn't just spontaneous, do whatever I want, whenever I want. And I hope you saw in Proverbs that what you're preparing her for is a life of work. It talked in Proverbs about rising early in the morning. This is a reality for a woman, particularly of young children. Of course, I I remember the teen years. Some of you, early in the morning, there's not a kid to be found, is there? It's an opposite problem. But a woman who, a young lady who rises early in the morning, why? Because she has a constant agenda of work and tasks. Never a dull moment. How can your daughter learn to love the home, to work in the home, if she's never in the home? And maybe this is more applicable to those of you with teenage daughters. And this applies to things like athletics, academics, things that are good. Those are good things, but how do they fall in her priority list? You should help her with that. Don't just let life drive you. You have to get in the driver's seat 
and help your daughter process the priorities of life. That work is normal. It's good. It's necessary. You train the priority of time commitments. Does social come first or do responsibilities in the home come first? Those of you who are the moms, that's an easy one, isn't it? The home comes first. Another way to train this, ladies, you should openly express joy in your God-given role. I've painted a picture of the difficulties of things like bodily fluids at the wrong time in the wrong place. That can look like a real negative. The hard thing for parents to do is to take that and to explain to your daughters, yes, that's the reality of life, but what a privilege to be in this role. Very, very helpful in training daughters to understand the place of work in their life. Moms should express gratitude that God has given her the opportunity to fulfill that role. Dads, again, you should openly and admire and exalt the work of your wife. Some dads think that life starts when they walk in the door at the end of the day, and they never make recognition of what the children already know, but they need help articulating, and that is all the work that happened all day long. Men, making that observation, thanking God for your wife in front of your children, thanking your wife in front of your children is incredibly impactful in teaching your daughters the place of work. And by the way, dads, you should openly encourage your daughter's skills. Don't mock them. Encourage them. When they burn the water, when you ask them to boil water, find a way to encourage them. (laughs) Teach them. Train them. Be for them. Don't mock them. Money. Number three, the third discipline. How do you teach the discipline of money? Well, you know, in this one, uh, your daughter might not marry an accountant someday. Should the Lord be good to you? No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Again, this isn't thus saith the Lord. These are ideas. Give her the opportunity to make some money from her labor. If you tell her to make her bed every morning, that probably isn't something you should compensate her for. That trains her to think that normal life results in compensation. But when she's given the opportunity, let's say, to wash the windows not part of her normal routine. Pay her for that work. Why? If only, there's a lot of reasons why you might want to do that, but maybe the only reason is to help her understand what it's like to have money now and what do I do with the money. Okay? If they have grandparents that spoil them and give them money, I don't know of any grandparents that would ever do that. Um, (laughs) That is an opportunity for them to begin to learn the concept of what do I do with this money? A five-year-old has no concept what a $20 bill means. At some point, a child does, and and it's an opportunity um, to train. To the extent they accumulate money, give them the opportunity if they're interested in investing money and budgeting money. I remember there were summers when Ann with the girls would um, um, give them a budget and give them the week to plan all the family meals. 
and take them shopping. And back in the day, cut coupons. That's how old we are. And it was hilarious. And it was fun. And it was exposing. Okay? And this wasn't when they were five years old, by the way. So you have to think about age appropriateness. Don't spoil your daughters. Your husband someday will thank you. But a daughter who doesn't make the connection between things, money, and work um, is handicapped and just expects things. Be careful. You know, even if your daughter marries the accountant, (laughs) the, the wisdom, knowledge, and experience you give her is priceless. Because the husband, even if he handles all the money, will become very reliant and dependent on her wisdom, her discernment, her knowledge. Okay? The discipline of kindness. Number four, you want to encourage your daughters to be in the service of others. It exposes their heart. And it exposes a few things. You want to deal aggressively with two things, jealousy and pride. Jealousy is how your daughter views people with more than her. And pride is how does she process people with less than her. And you say more of what, less of what? I don't know. Depends on your daughter. Money, jewelry, clothes, friends, whatever it is. Your daughter, because she's human, is dealing with the issue of jealousy and pride. Your job is to expose that and to help disciple her and walk her through that. Prepare her to be kind to everyone. Take her out of her comfort zone. Put her in a place with people that she is not comfortable with to teach her kindness. You know, and and part of that is teaching our daughters, this goes along with money a little bit, financial and service commitment to the church. The church is a great opportunity for this. Focusing on things other than herself. Contentment, number five. Contentment. You should be training your daughters that confidence comes from preparation and planning. Life is not spontaneous. It can be. It's going to be frenetic. But a life that's planned and prepared for brings contentment. You want to model and teach that kind of confidence, not arrogance. You want to train your daughters to take the long-term view, set a goal, set a plan, achieve the goal. Humility. You want to let her work speak for her, not her own mouth. You got that, right? So how do you get there? Well, mom and dad, you and I have to be the example here. We can say that all day long. But if they see something different happening with mom and dad, it's going to supersede everything you say. You want to aggressively deal with a haughty or an arrogant spirit, as the Bible calls it. You want to help her understand how it feels to do a thankless task. Because she has to. This goes back to the work ethic of doing things that nobody notices, nobody praises her every time she does it, she just does it. That's her life in the future. Prepare her for the long days and nights of being a parent of young, sick, needy, dependent children. You want to model it. 
I think you should be careful how much you praise your daughter. You want to be careful what you praise her for. You shouldn't praise her for things she has nothing to do with. You are so beautiful. She did, she, that's not anything she accomplished. I'm not saying you shouldn't say that. But if that's the extent of your praise, something's out of kilter. Now, I happen to believe grandparents can do it with grandchildren, but <laughs> that's a little bit different. That's another session. You want to be careful that you don't praise her for everything she does. You want to be careful that you do praise her when it's appropriate, and you want to focus your praise on who she is, not just on what she does. And what should you praise her for? Proverbs 31 is a great outline. And what should she aspire to? The praise of her parents and it should sound, and it, she should aspire to that because she hears the praise of her father for her mother. And those of you that are in single parent homes, um, I need to say this: there are ways you can find to praise that former spouse. Somehow, find it. Okay. A girl by the way, who cannot submit to authority is not ready for marriage. Again, we're talking about humility. If she cannot submit to your authority, she cannot submit to the authorities at school, law enforcement, whatever it is. If she can't do it there, I don't know um, how it's reasonable to expect that she will submit to a man and to allow her to pursue those relationships when that is a glaring issue in her life is to set her up for what? failure. Can, the, can Christ override all of that? Absolutely. But you need to um, be aware of that. And if she's not ready for marriage, here we go, should she be dating? Here's that word. And just like last week, training a young lady to pursue um, relationships with someone of the opposite sex where there is not a, a, an expectation that it could be for life is to train your daughter to pursue an emotional rush, a feeling um, of love or whatever you, she might call it, but it's not realistic. And it feeds her pride. Some young ladies, we see it in the youth department, they always have to have a boyfriend around. And they actually start feeling like they're not special or they're not doing or who they should be if they don't have a young man following them around. That's dangerous. That feeds pride. It is contrary to the humility that comes with understanding I am to be a helper to one man for life. Okay? Number seven, modesty, and then we're done. Modesty. You need to approach the issues of dress from the standpoint of drawing attention to herself. And this should happen long before it's an issue. If possible, I know some, this is too late for some of you, but before she's a teenager, it should be embedded in her soul, in her mind, and in the culture of your home that attention is drawn to godliness, not to physical appearance. You don't want the wrong kind of attention. You want to talk to her about why do you want to be noticed so much? Especially in this day and age of I have 300 followers on Instagram and you only have 150. 
or whatever the numbers are. I'm not on Instagram. You're probably going, 150? Why bother? That's how many I would have, probably, or 20. The big question for your daughter is that you need to help inform is what does she want to be known for? Her looks or her character? And you know the answer to that. That is the crux of the issue of modesty. And so if you're dealing with um, issues of modesty at the last minute, there's a whole bunch of groundwork that needs to be set. And I'm going to tell you a story, and then, and then we'll be done. Um, I took a parenting class um, when we had teenagers, and one of the pastors here at Grace at the time um, laid out this idea, and it was fantastic. He said, Dads, what you should be doing is taking your daughter's clothes shopping. That's like kryptonite to whoever, right? That means I have to go to a mall? Best advice I ever got. It was so much fun. And it was such a great opportunity. And each of my three daughters were very different. But guys, I know I just scared the life out of you. Good. Do it. Don't miss out. Take your daughters clothes shopping. And in that context then, in the right way at the age-appropriate time, you talk to them about how men view them. You'd be amazed how your daughter doesn't understand that until you tell them that. Tell them that. And you think that's something her mom should tell her. Well, I would tell you Proverbs 1 through 7 is for time and eternity, inspired by God, a father walking his children through really sensitive, difficult topics. Dads, there is nothing you should not be talking about. And to take your kids, your daughters, particularly clothes shopping, you know, I'll just leave it there. You will have stories to tell someday. It's great stuff. Let me conclude with this. Ladies, I want to thank you for what you do. All the moms here, the wives, thank you. I'm saying that on behalf of your husbands. Husband. Hopefully you only have one husband. On behalf of your husband. I have to be careful. Um, On behalf of your husband, on behalf of your children, thank you. What you are doing is not appreciated in this world. It is demeaned and diminished in this world. I hope you got a sense this morning that God views it very, very highly. There's a high calling and influence of women. Ladies and men, please teach your daughters that view. Swim against the current. Teach your sons God's view of women. Because there might be a future wife of your son in this room someday. She deserves better than a man who doesn't understand God's high view of women and treats her accordingly. And dads, one more time, so much of this is on you. Enjoy it, but work it. Do your work. Not exclusively, it's not just dads. But I can tell you as a father of daughters, when you get to the teen years, dads, you are critical. And you lay the work before you get to the teen years, and the teen years are a lot of fun and a lot of work. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for children. Thank you for the gift of children. Thank you for godly, biblical women. Lord, you have a very high view. Lord, we um, confess that sometimes we forget that. Lord, we want to honor the moms and the wives in our midst for doing the work that you've called them to do. Thank you for the clarity of your word. Lord, I pray for each of the parents here and the families they represent. 
May their home be an example to the, uh, a cold, dark world out there of what a good biblical home looks like. To your praise and glory in Christ's name, amen.